Hello, Kaylee community. I'm so glad you're with us today on this June 4th in the United Methodist Church. We call this Peace with Justice Sunday. It's the uh, first Sunday in June every year. And, you know, I didn't uh, have time with the Memorial Day holiday. I didn't take the time to to look at the roots of Peace with Justice Sunday, and I'm going to do that and uh, put it out on social media But I do think that the timing of Peace with Justice Sunday is very fortuitous because it does seem like in the month of June and toward the end of May that there's a lot of tension in the United States. There's a lot of racial tension. We see a lot of uh, racial clashes in the month of June. Recently, we just uh, remembered the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd uh, last week. And so we just know this time is a good time for us as the people of God, to take a a moment to reflect on the past, to consider the present, and to dream about the future, uh, to remember what it is to have justice, and to also do it in such a way that brings peace and not violence. And so it's uh, very good that we're continuing our study today in Isaiah chapter 56 as we talk about this house of prayer. And I thought I would just uh, read the scripture today from a new translation, uh, a different translation than usually what I use, which is the New Living Translation, just to give you a different flavor of how these scriptures go. And so we're doing Isaiah 56, uh, verses 1 through 8. Be just and fair to all, says the Lord. Do what is right and good, for I am coming soon to rescue you. Blessed are those who are careful to do this. Blessed are those who honor my Sabbath days of rest by refusing to work, and blessed are those who keep themselves from doing wrong. And my blessings are for Gentiles, too, when they commit themselves to the Lord. Do not let them think that I consider them second-class citizens. And my blessings are also for the eunuchs, for they are as much mine as anyone else. For I say this to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy, who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name far greater than the honor that they would have received by having sons and daughters. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never be cut off or disappear. I will also bless the Gentiles who commit themselves to the Lord and serve him and love his name who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who have accepted his covenant. I will bring them also to my holy mountain of Jerusalem, and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices, because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others too besides my people Israel. Christ is the word of God for the people of God. And we say thanks be to God. I know a man who once lived in the body of a woman. So goes the sentence written by the Irish poet and theologian Padraig Tuama in his book In the Shelter. I know a man who once lived in the body of a woman. Padraig goes on to write, His family left him, and so he learns about relatives' death in the newspaper, and learns about nephews and nieces through secret letters sent from a sympathetic cousin. 
Patrick once knew a man who lived in the body of a woman. It's such an interesting way to think about how someone might live their lives in this world. And today it's very appropriate for us to consider this because in Isaiah 56 today, we move from last week when we discussed the foreigner or who is called the Gentile in the New Living Translation, the Xenos, the, the foreigner, someone who's not from around here. We move from that character to another character in the story. Today, we talk about the character who is called the eunuch. Now, you may recall a few weeks ago, we did an overview of this passage and we discussed the nature of eunuchs in the Bible and how Jesus taught about them. If you'll recall in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus spoke about three different kinds of eunuchs. And this was very common for ancient rabbis uh, to put people in this certain category who didn't fit in other neat male or female categories. And so Jesus talked about three kinds of eunuchs, those who were made that way by others, those who made themselves that way, and those who were born that way. If you want to hear more about that, I invite you to go back to week one in the House of Prayer series, and we go into a little more detail about what that means. But just by way of a quick overview, those who were made that way by others, in other words, and remember if there are kids in the room that this conversation for about a minute is a little bit graphic, but there were those called eunuchs who were forcibly castrated by kings, queens, princes, leaders who needed, quote-unquote, safe people to care for the court, and particularly to care for the queen or the princesses or females in the court. And so they would do this horrible act in order to basically provide some sense of security about who was serving in the court. There were also those, Jesus said, who were born that way, those who we might call today intersex, with uh, various ways of being born that aren't clearly male or female or sometimes appear to be both. And then, of course, those who made themselves eunuchs. And as far as we can tell from research, um, there may have been an occasion here or there. Some of it's very apocryphal where someone physically made themselves a eunuch, but more likely this is metaphorical. People who chose to live a celibate life, not to have children and uh, not to have a spouse uh, but to live for the kingdom of God, as Jesus says in Matthew 19. And as I said in week one, I, I do think there's some hint there that Jesus is speaking of himself in this moment. Someone who didn't get married, didn't have children, was very non-traditional. But all of that information is just background to give you the nuts and bolts of two important definitions for a eunuch in the Bible. The first thing is a eunuch did not have a traditional family. No partner, no spouse, and no children. And the second thing is a eunuch did not fit neatly into a male or female category. There were some eunuchs who tended to be male and were made neutral through the castration process, but there are also those we, we see who are born that way or who made themselves that way, as Jesus says. And so those two markers will be helpful for you to remember when you see eunuch in the Bible. It's someone who didn't have a traditional family didn't have a spouse, was not going to have children and pass on any inheritance. And it's someone who uh, did not fit, fit into a neat male or female category. Hopefully that helps a little bit. But if you think that, you know, I'm just kind of making this up. I mean, just go, go explore the story of eunuchs in the Bible, because what's fascinating about eunuchs in the Bible is they are almost universally portrayed in a positive way. 
and they are almost universally beloved and looked out for in the Bible. And that's pretty strange because eunuchs cut against the grain of what it was to be a human in ancient times. Not having that traditional family, not being neatly male or female, those made them an outlier in the community. And so it's interesting in the entirety of the Bible that eunuchs are often portrayed in this positive light as those who help, as those who are keen and interested to learn, and in our own passage today as those who are fully included in the promises of God. You can go to Isaiah 56, you can go to Matthew 19 as we've talked about, or you could also go to Acts chapter 8. And I'd like to look in Acts chapter 8 for a little bit with you because This particular passage of scripture is pretty special to me. It's the passage that I was uh, listening and learning about when I got saved at about 16 years of age. I don't know if you recall, but I would invite you to go read Acts chapter 8. And in that story, there's a a deacon named Philip, a servant of the church who's been commissioned to go out and, and evangelize and spread the good news. And as Philip is traveling, he meets this eunuch from Ethiopia. And this eunuch is reading this very area of scripture in Isaiah. Now, it's important for you to recall in those days, we didn't have Bibles that you folded open and turned pages. We had scrolls that you rolled out. And so this eunuch was clearly, as we find from the story, a wealthier person, someone who served the court in Ethiopia. And so they had a scroll of Isaiah. And if they rolled out that scroll, no doubt... They would have rolled out a passage that may have included Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 56, just three chapters apart, and those chapter headings did not exist in the ancient scrolls. And so this could have been one long passage in one long section of the scroll. The eunuch in this story is reading from Isaiah 53, just a few short chapters back from what we're reading today, reading about the suffering servant the one who had nothing beautiful about them, but was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. You might remember this because we believe it's uh, it's a prophetic word about the coming of Jesus. And in the story, Philip meets this eunuch in their chariot, and they have a conversation about Isaiah 53, and Philip speaks about Jesus Christ, and the eunuch believes The eunuch hears about baptism, that if you want to join God's family, one of the ways to do that is to get baptized. And the eunuch says, what hinders me? What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip gloriously basically says nothing at all. Let's go get in this river over here or this lake, whatever body of water they were at. They go down into the water, they come up and the eunuch pops up rejoicing and goes on their way. It's a beautiful story. And for me, It touched me at 16 years old, not because of the eunuch or Philip, but just the idea of joining God's family and getting baptized that appealed to me. And so I asked to be baptized at that moment and and was able to do so as a teenager. But later on, I would come to see the real impact of the story of Acts chapter 8. I don't know if you realize the scandal of Acts chapter 8. Now, for following the chronology of Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, there is no Gentile who's become a Christian yet. There's no Gentile who's been baptized and is following God yet. Two chapters later in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter have a vision. 
and go to Cornelius, who was a, a Roman soldier and a Gentile, and convert his whole family and baptize them into the family of God. But this is two chapters earlier. And it wasn't an apostle. It was just a deacon of the church, a servant of the church, serving underneath the apostles and the leaders of the church who shared the gospel with this person who happened to be a eunuch, a non-Jew, and not clearly male or female with no partner, no spouse. And yet they are the first outside of Judaism to be invited to be a part of the family of God. I have to wonder, I just have to wonder if when Isaiah penned these words in Isaiah 56, 700 years before this moment, did Isaiah have in mind this eunuch? When Isaiah makes this promise that eunuchs will not be cut off from God's people, but will be fully included and will be given a name better than son or daughter, did Isaiah think that the first person outside the Jewish faith to be incorporated into the body of Christ would be a eunuch, that it would be a name better than son or daughter because it would be child of God, baptized into the family of God. It's important for us to take a step back and think about the promises that are actually made in Isaiah 56. There are three things I need you to notice about this passage, and they are critically important. The first, I would say, is that when we talk about a house of prayer, I don't think Isaiah is actually talking about the temple. Our New Living Translation I use today says temple, and I did that on purpose so that I could talk a little bit about how translations are very different and sometimes a little less accurate, sometimes more accurate. But in this case, it says a, a temple of prayer instead of house of prayer. Those words are really interchangeable, and it's not so important that it says that. But I think the bigger picture is that in the Christian tradition, we see that the house of prayer is not a physical building. The house of prayer is a culture. It's a, a family, a gathering of people for a common purpose. If you remember last week, we talked about how the enemies of the house of prayer will take down those stones and try to build a wall and separate us. And it's our job as followers of Jesus Christ to take those stones and build a house of prayer, build a a space, a culture, a family in which God can reside and which we can continually add people into our home. So when we read about this house of prayer, we see by the promise given to the eunuch that it's not just a physical building, but that the eunuch is being invited to be a part of a family, to be a part of a movement, to be a part of God's people, to be adopted. And so house of prayer is more than just a temple or a building. The second thing I want you to see from this passage is that God promises to bring the eunuch within God's walls. And this can be kind of hard to understand in the 21st century, but walls were everything, everything in the ancient world. If you were within the walls, you were much, much, much safer than if you were outside the walls. Every city, even small cities, had walls to protect the people. And if an invading horde of people were coming down from the mountains in the distance, then you'd be able to come into the city and close the gates and hide behind the walls of the city to protect yourself and protect your family. So walls were a symbol of protection in those days. Ironically, walls mean something completely different today. 
They're no longer a symbol of protection. They're now a symbol of division. Things have really changed since the time Isaiah wrote, when walls were a good thing, (laughs) when walls were keeping you safe from the enemy. But now today we build walls, not so much to be safe, but to keep people out we don't like, to divide ourselves up. You know, it was just last month that I was able to visit Israel and Palestine, the West Bank, and I was deeply moved and troubled by what I saw. You see, the Israeli government has built a wall, an actual wall. It looks like a medieval fortress of a wall, and it separates the Palestinian people from the Israeli people. I don't know if you recognize this, but Palestinian people are both Muslim and Christian. In fact, all Christians that live in Israel are essentially Palestinians. The Israeli government doesn't recognize a difference between Muslim and Christian. They call them all Arabs. Because they come from another place, they have brown skin, they're from the East, they're people who don't fit in, quote-unquote. And so Israel has begun and finished, in fact, building this medieval wall and these various fences and gates and checkpoints to keep Palestinians out and to control the flow of Palestinians in and out of Israel. Now, I know what you're thinking. You've probably heard all the stories and seen things on TV about terrorist bombings and bus bombings and and suicide bombers. And that's all true. That did happen. It did. It did happen. And most of it happened in about a five to seven year period. It was called the Second Intifada in the early 2000s when Palestinians were protesting their oppression and occupation. And so they did uh, commit acts that we would consider human rights violations At the same time, Israel has responded in kind by uh, committing their own human rights violations. And so what we see is this massive wall built to keep out Palestinians completely, when 99.999% of Palestinians are just like us. They just want to live peacefully, go about their lives, make a living for their family, and worship in the place they choose. But they're not allowed to do that in Israel. So it's interesting to me that I had this experience, this strange experience when I was there, and I was thinking about this very passage of Scripture, and I thought for a moment, isn't it crazy that Israel, Judah, Isaiah, would promise the foreigner and the eunuch that they would be within the walls of the people of Israel, and today the people of Israel are building walls to keep them out rather than to hold them in and keep them safe. It was so ironic to me. So interesting to me that these are the very texts which the people of Israel, the religious people at least of Israel, would hold dear, and yet they cannot see the promise of the foreigner and the eunuch being invited within the walls, and so they kick them out to the other side of the walls, to the other side where there's very little trash service, 20% of the water that they get in Israel, where they don't have access to health care. They have to get a visa to go get major health care across the border. It's amazing to me because of the promises of the Jewish scriptures, which we follow as Christians as well, that say, I will give the eunuch a place within my walls, a safe place. Come in and be a part of who we are. So we have this house of prayer, not a physical building, but a family. 
And we invite the eunuch into the family within the walls. We don't keep them outside the walls. And finally, God's final promise to the eunuch is to give the eunuch a name. A name that will last forever. A name that will never be cut off. A name that is better than son or daughter. I hope you let that sink in for a moment. Remember who a eunuch is. And I think it will be helpful for us today just to just to think of somebody who may be transgender. The word eunuch does not mean transgender, but it is a, a parallel experience, right? Because if you are transgender, often your family looks different and you don't fit into a neat male or female category. You're trying to present yourself with a certain gender, but often people are pushing back. As Patrick Otuma said, we know men who live in the bodies of women. We know women who live in the bodies of men. There are people who are just born who know that their soul and their spirit and their mind are a different gender than the body that they've been born into. And so take it away from the eunuch for just a moment and picture a transgender person. Maybe you know someone. And if you don't, you need to meet someone who's going through that experience of being transgender because it will change you and it will make you a better person. Picture that transgender person, someone who has maybe a a male name, but desires so much to have a female name. And God says, I'll give you a name that will last forever. You won't have to change your name in my kingdom. Think about a transgender person who has to have surgery to modify themselves in order to feel like they are who they feel they are deep down inside. Like the eunuch who was castrated, God says, I'll give you a name that will never be cut off. In other words, you will be who you were meant to be at the core of your being. And you won't have to do violence in order to get there. I will give it to you. And lastly, God says, I will give you a name that's better than son or daughter. For our non-binary friends, for our transgender friends who are still figuring things out in their life, what a promise to know that God is transcending male and female. God is transcending son and daughter and is reaching out to a particular kind of person saying that it's okay. If you haven't felt like a son or if you haven't felt like a daughter, it's okay because I'm going to give you a better name. And then we look at Acts chapter 8 and we see it happen. That name is simple. Anybody, including transgender people, including people who are non-binary, including people who are gay or straight, including foreigners, Gentiles and Jews, everybody can get this name. It is the name that is the child of God. The child of God. Think about that. This is a promise from God in the Holy Scriptures. When you hear, take your Bible seriously, what does the Bible say? Or you hear, the Bible says it, so that is so. The Bible says it. That those who do not have traditional families, those who do not fit in a neat male and female categories are invited into the kingdom of God, into the house of prayer within our walls, not to be kept outside of our walls, and that they are given a name special to them so that they know they belong in God's house. 
Recently, I saw a Facebook post in which somebody new had moved into the area, and they asked if a particular church was friendly to the LGBTQIA community. And I was interested to see all the comments below because there are a lot of pastors or members of different churches saying, well, we welcome everybody. We welcome everybody. We're all sinners. Anybody can come worship with us. And I thought, yeah, but there's a wall there. You let them come this far, but no further. Because, yes, most churches in Canadian County and Oklahoma will let you come worship and sit in a pew or a chair. But God forbid that you're allowed to do a public prayer or sing in the choir or preach a sermon. God forbid that you're allowed to teach children in Sunday school or watch kids in the nursery or participate and lead a Sunday school class for adults. Because that's just a bridge too far. You see, every church I know of in Canadian County would put a wall up that says you can come worship with us and that's it. Because until you change who you are, we're not going to let you take the next step into our walls, into our house of prayer. And so I'm here to tell you, that's who Kaylee Community is. We're a house of prayer for all peoples where we invite you into our walls, into our safe place, and we give you a name better than any other name, which is child of God. And you don't have to change who you are, how you were born, who you love, what gender is in your soul and spirit. You do have to turn from sin. As it says in the passage, maintain justice and do what is right. What does that mean? It means we don't hurt people. It means we do good in the world. It means we feed the hungry. We clothe the naked. We give homes to the homeless. We find refuge for those who are fleeing from violence. And we don't wrongly imprison people, and we definitely don't put them to death. We do justice. We do what is right. But if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to turn toward justice then we're not going to tell you you're not invited because you don't fit into our neat categories. Republican or Democrat, <laughs> short or tall, gay or straight, male or female, you're invited to be a part of our house of prayer within our walls and to be called a child of God. Amen? Amen.